Hi there, let's begin a conversation about faith, an element of life with God that Jesus emphasised over and over and which is a huge part of how we access the enormous potential of grace. Abraham is the poster child of faith. We're told to look to him as an example of life with God, and yet he was no fast learner. From the time of God's initial promise of a child to Isaac's eventual birth was 25 years. God held off the delivery until the man had cultivated the belief required to be a true steward of his promise. You and I will not be allowed to bypass this crucial forming of faith either. Sure, you can carry on with life and accumulate all sorts of things as Abraham did over those years. You can walk intimately with God. You can go through many of life's seasons and you can even regard yourself as fulfilled. And yet there will remain a glass wall that seems to block your spiritual progress. Access to new experiences and expressions of your journey with God require new facets and depths of belief. Faith is a core marker of true maturity in Christ. Faith for salvation is a beginning, but it cannot stop or even level out there. Have you ever been forced to navigate a new season of life and found that what was previously an adequate relationship with God is now continually overdrawn? For example, as young couples navigate the transition from singleness to marriage and then children, they often find that the extra demands on time and privacy outstrip their spiritual capacity. They need to find new depths of faith and ways to engage with God. Or perhaps it shows up because of a challenging promotion at work or a stressful church situation. Maybe God calls you into Christian leadership and suddenly you need wisdom and strength far beyond your previous norms. In reality, it applies to all of us engaging in what the New Testament defines as the normal Christian life. Now, Jesus unapologetically expected those around him to show faith. Don't be afraid, just believe, he would say to someone whose daughter had already died. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? He asked of his own failing followers who had previously succeeded in healing people and casting out demons. So yes, Jesus set the bar of faith pretty high for those who engaged with him. Of course, he also knows that we all struggle with doubt, as did his disciples. Incredibly, even when they had seen all he had done, including rising from the dead, they still doubted. Yet Jesus never accommodated uh, or condoned a lack of raw belief. The Apostle Paul in the years that followed seemed a little more accommodating without ever lowering the importance of faith. He saw it as a mechanism by which we appropriate the riches of God's grace in whatever form that would take. For it is by grace you are saved through faith he would say of salvation. Use your grace gifts in proportion with your faith, he would say to those working in a degree of power. And yet he expected that faith to grow, the increasing impact of ministry being reliant on that fact. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he ushered in a totally new game plan for those trying to live for and with God. Until then, people relied either on their own attempts at holy living or upon the temple-based sacrificial system if they were to have any hope of appeasing what they saw to be an angry God. Yet a closer look at the sacrificial system will reveal that even it was based in faith. 
The sacrifices were a shadow of who was to come. They were an act of belief, relying on the fact that one day a true lamb without blemish would come to redeem his people from their sin. This, of course, was fulfilled in Jesus. But today we continue to struggle in prioritizing faith as number one on the list of what God is looking for. We revert more naturally to his response of what was the greatest law, i.e. to love God and love people. But Jesus, Jesus gave a legal response there to a judicial question. Is keeping the command important? Of course. But should we simply replace one law with another in an attempt to please God through a certain level of attainment? No, I don't think that was what Jesus was getting at. Jesus prioritised and celebrated simple belief more than any other facet of human response. We see it when he shows positive amazement at the faith of the centurion. Just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed, he'd said. We see it when the religious elite inquired about how to earn righteousness. What is it that God expects of us, Jesus, they asked. His response, just believe in me. But surely that can't be it. No, believing in Jesus is never just it because believing in Jesus changes things. It incites a change in behavior because belief is reliance, not just acknowledgement. Faith isn't a matter of being convinced rationally that he is who he says he is. It's a deep and ongoing reliance on him to provide all that we need. Faith looks to God to give us the grace we need to live the way he calls us to, where the law required grace enables and grace is accessed through faith if we were to train each other how to rely on god with as much energy as we teach religious expectations i'm sure we would end up with a much holier church faith is our primary priority but faith is never alone jesus brother james goes to exhaustive and often quoted lengths in his epistle to declare i will show you my faith by my deeds he assumed that the right root will always bear the right fruit. It was unthinkable to separate faith from deeds when the former can't help but produce the latter. Paul used different language with the same intent when he would talk of the obedience that comes from faith. As a primary heart marker, faith produces so much of the lifestyle that we and the world would hope believers would adopt. Things like social justice, the provision of societal moral compasses and the admirable living that early believers seasoned their communities with. They're meant to be a natural outworking of our reliance on the spirit for everyday life. But so long as we rely on outward performance and ignore the inward faith, we'll continue to fall far short of what is possible. The testimony of God's church can't remain that which was accomplished through our own strength. In Abraham's 25 years of waiting for the promise, he tried many ways to make it happen through his own ingenuity. Each attempt seemed to activate a reset in the process until he finally learned to simply believe in God for what had been promised. It's almost as if faith, because it required waiting in his case, was the last resort from the list of options. And yet we find ourselves in a much more multiplied position than Abraham's. We have medicine, social welfare, communications, technology, and supermarkets stacked with food. Very few scenarios we face in our day incite us to a faith response by default. But there are some facets of life, 
particularly life with God, that can only be accessed through belief. The breakthroughs that we so often need are initiated through a breakthrough of faith. God may even leave us to try all those other options to have our needs met, but when we sit back disillusioned and exhausted, he will ask again, will you now just believe? We can't simply inform our way into spiritual renewal. We don't fan into flame the spiritual gifts by doing an online assessment. We need to actively rely on him to do what only he can. At times, that means we do nothing. At other times, it requires you to step out. How then do you know which way to exercise faith? By knowing who God is and listening to his word. Faith is a relational dynamic. You may remember from previous teachings that the human need for relationship with God is only found by faith. It's by faith that we continue and grow. God is not a distant deity or lifeless idol we look, look to for provision alone. He's woven into your very being, filling you with every breath. He's to be inquired of and listened to. When we look with clarity at the things he actually promised to provide in the New Testament life, they are so often relationally provided. The guidance, the joy, the strength, the revelation, the wisdom and the peace, they're all received through connecting personally at a soul deep level. When God provides an upgrade in your life in any of these areas, it inevitably comes from an upgrade in the relational closeness you enjoy with him. Non-relational faith does not hear clearly or engage personally. It reverts to formulas and assumptions of what God will do. This will always lead to disappointment as God doesn't promise to meet our personal expectations of him. Romans 10:17 tells us that true faith comes by hearing the word of God. When we truly know who he is and what he has said, it's so much easier to just believe. You know, one of the most common stumbling blocks to faith is that people know God can do anything. They just aren't sure he wills it. And this for many reasons. Today, I'd like to unpack that a little and let's just begin with scripture and look at Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25, where Jesus redefines what normal faith might look like. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Whenever you find personal and cultural renewal, you'll inevitably notice the presence of increased faith. Optimism abounds, expectancy becomes contagious, and testimony of God's intervention increases. Ironically, however, another dynamic also comes to the forefront for many, a sense of disappointment. It seems that for every story of miraculous breakthrough, there's a story of hopes dashed. Belief may have been high for God to heal a cancer, even cavalier declarations made in public, but then comes a funeral full of confusion and a group of people navigating a silent crisis of belief. A wave of faith often carries in its wake a turbulent polarization among God's people. 
One side refuses to be discouraged, dedicating themselves with full confidence in the belief that God can and will do anything. The other side struggles with unanswered questions, growing in skepticism of grandiose promises and prophetic declarations. One question rings out often from hearts that combine a desire to see God do more with a lost confidence that every prayer is answered. And it goes like this. How do I know what God's will is in this situation? They long to know what they can legitimately have faith in. They want to know how to pray confidently when not every prayer appears to be answered. They're looking for a way forward, but the theological and practical bridges can look a little bit unstable. And so instead of a confident prayer of faith, they hedge their bets with, if it be your will, let it be. And it seems to be a safe and legitimate prayer. We figure that if nothing happens, then it mustn't have been God's plan. But at least we've done our faithful part by praying, right? After all, God only does what he wants. So why would we pray for anything else? But God doesn't need our permission to do what he has already determined to occur. And besides, does that sound like the sort of prayer we would hear from the Jesus of the Gospels or even his followers? Jesus consistently rebuked those close to him who doubted. Inversely, he was over the moon when a Roman centurion showed the brazen belief he had hoped for from Israel. It all begs the question, if we're to pray with confidence, on what are we to base that belief? If we're called to unquestioning faith, knowing that not every request is granted, how do we combine integrity with high levels of expectancy? There's a difference between what God wills to happen and what he wants to happen. For example, he wants you to live in freedom from sin and live a holy life, and yet that doesn't always occur. He wants us all to be saved, and yet most of humanity rejects the offer. God's will, the way we normally frame it, speaks more of his determination than his desire, or what he ensures happens more than what, we would, what he would like to happen. It was God's plan and will for Jesus to go to the cross, for example, and yet he could never condone or empower or want to see murder and malice. Theologians define various facets of God's will. Understanding the primary ones helps us to know how to pray and exercise faith. Firstly, there is sovereign will, the determinations that are often hidden from us, which are prerequisite to fulfilling his purpose and are beyond human interference. Then we have God's permissive will, the events and human choices that he allows to take place that may or may not align with his preference. And finally, his dispositional will, referring to God's preference or what he would want to see happen. This includes his revealed will as defined by the ethics and mandates found in Scripture. Now, many of us approach our prayers and faith from a strongly blueprinted view of life, which sees eternity as a huge and inevitable map defined intricately by God's sovereignty. Our own authority and role in fulfilling God's kingdom preference is seen as quite small, viewing ourselves as sort of pawns in a cosmic chess game with little input or influence. But with this view, the fact that God so rarely lets us in on his sovereign plans leaves us guessing. We're unsure of the significance of our prayers and uncertain what to do or what to ask for. We look for direction in life by asking God continually for incremental guidance. Just tell me, Lord, do I go left or right? What's your will? What we find, however, is that God's plan is seen more clearly in hindsight than foresight. 
we can look back over the path taken and see that he has gently directed without over-defining. His plans are beyond our spiritual and intellectual pay grade, but he somehow still finds a way to lead us into his path. Like a heavenly version of a car's navigation system, he knows the ultimate destination to which he guides us. That's his sovereign will. A calm voice tells us the best way to get there, telling us to take the next right, or if we are totally off course, to take a repentant U-turn when safe to do so. This is navigating God's revealed or dispositional will. And yet we sometimes determine to go in a direction that suits us. He says right, we say left. He says to turn around, but we continue on a path away from his plan. He does not rob us of the choice, but continues to call us back from wherever we are. This is living within permissive will. Obviously, what happens under the umbrella of permissive will is not always what God wants. People like you and I do terrible things. The enemy causes mischief and calamity strikes us all. Our broken world will remain so until he's coming. And yet even within that confusion, he calls us, making a way for all things good and bad to work together for his good purpose. After Jesus had calmed the storm in Luke 8, he asked pointedly of the frightened disciples, where is your faith? He may or may not have expected them to calm the stormy seas as he had, but he had certainly expected their hearts to remain calm. Jesus had been content to sleep through the storm, and the same faith that allowed him to sleep also enabled him to quell the tempest. What God willed was that they get to the other side of the lake. Jesus had told them it was where they were going. What God wanted was for the disciples to be at peace. And the Spirit has been given to us to make possible all that we know God wants. His grace comes in many forms. Power, peace, wisdom, strength and more. He opens a door to access that grace through our faith. The Spirit gives us all we need to fulfil God's dispositional will. That includes our holy living, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and also working in his power. He told his disciples to go and heal the sick and to make other disciples who would also do all that they had been commanded. So their mandate and modus operandi, it's also ours. When we pray for the sick to be healed, we are fulfilling God's dispositional will. He told us to do so, and the Spirit is present to make all things possible. If our mind is full of doubt, wondering if it's God's plan for, us, for it to be so, we are not only stepping outside of what we know God wants, we are relying on knowing the end game more than we are relying on God to meet every need. The bedrock of faith is always found in who God is and what he has said. In that sense, faith is dependent on intimate relationship, not on knowledge of what is on the back page of his playbook. Our primary human need is to have intimacy with God, not with an idol or distant deity that we depend on to meet needs without connection. That relationship is accessed through faith, which becomes a primary heart marker of true believers. When it comes to living with God, fallen human beings prefer formula over friendship. We grew accustomed to the separation resulting from the fall. We learned to get by without close proximity to God. And when it came to forming early religions, it was more about keeping a distant God happy than about finding happiness in a God who was close. This dynamic continues in our day, but a renewal of heart moves us towards a faith in God rooted more deeply in intimacy with him. 
You may remember the confronting situation in Mark 9 as the disciples struggled to heal a boy without speech who was convulsing. Jesus' diagnosis of the problem was simple, saying, you unbelieving generation. Then after healing the boy, the disciples pulled him aside to ask why they couldn't do the same. This kind only come out by prayer and fasting, he said. Jesus defined lack of faith as the problem and prayer and fasting as the solution. Now, many have read this passage and surmised there's the formula. If you want to tackle the difficult cases, you have to pray and fast until they come good. They take what is relational and make it transactional, as if God is obliged to do something if we jump through the right hoops. But prayer and fasting are mechanisms of increasing our intimacy and hunger for God. They aren't intended for inciting reciprocity. In the passage mentioned, you may notice that Jesus didn't pray and fast before healing the boy. He already had a deep relationship built from a lifetime of prayer. His point was that the faith we need comes from dwelling deeply with the faithful one. The Spirit is dwelling with you to give you all you need to fulfill what God wants. He is what we need to, to counter the effects of our broken world, the devil who fights us and the effects of our fallenness. In the battle to have earth look more like heaven, the thin red line advances only as far as we learn to lean more strongly on God's grace. We aren't to know the detail of what battles will be won. We're to work with God to advance as far as we can in our lifetime, growing faith and building fruitfulness. I wonder what you found to be the most effective discipline that helps you connect more deeply with God. Enjoy discussing that with the people around you right now and I'll see you for the next message.